Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode comes from a conversation that Corey and I got to have with Haven Scott McVarish. It was a fascinating and intriguing conversation. He taught us a lot about some issues with the political system in the U.S. and some big threats to democracy. Before the conversation, Corey and I each went through Haven's most recent book entitled Last Chance to Save American Democracy. The book itself has some strong political opinions in it. And that's not what we're focused on here or what we talked about with Haven during our conversation. But from both the book and from this conversation, I feel like I learned a lot about our political system in general that I didn't know before. And I feel like it gives me a more complete picture of the dangerous path we're on and how this all relates to collapse. Yeah, I feel like Haven's experience in the political system gives a really interesting and unique perspective on why everything works the way that it does. And like you said, the types of issues that that creates and threats to our democracy. So I'm just going to read a bio about Haven here so you can get to know a little bit about his background. So Haven Scott McVarish is the founder and director of the nonprofit organizations Common Sense Democracy and Five Journeys. He has been a community organizer, a strategist for local political campaigns, a union leader, and the founder of one of the most successful immigration law firms in Los Angeles. He is a former congressional candidate, a frequent progressive political commentator for Real America's Voice, and now a regenerative farmer. His second book, Last Chance to Save American Democracy, was published weeks before the 2020 election. So obviously the interview was pre-recorded. We've already gone through that and really enjoyed it. 
If you also enjoy the interview and you want to check out Haven's book, it's available on Amazon and Kindle, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook. It's also available on bookshop.org and Barnes and Noble. Enjoy the interview. All right, Haven, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Kellen. Yeah, this is an interview that Kellen and I have been pretty excited about for a while now. And I just feel like there's going to be so much to learn from you and about you that applies to Collapse. And I thought maybe we'd start by just asking um, the question, where do you stand on the idea of Collapse? Yeah, so um, I have been uh, Collapse paranoid, Collapse aware, and Collapse oblivious uh, since the late 80s. Uh, really started with a book called uh, Stark by Ben Elton, uh, which is a funny take on Collapse. And then, you know, after a while, living with that, seeing Collapse everywhere, you, you want to shut it off for a while. You know, you, you don't want to feel like every article you hear is like, oh, yeah, there's Collapse. It's, it's going to happen. But ultimately, um, I do believe in the trends. Um, I do believe in a lot of the, in, in fact, there's very little I disagree with that I've heard from you guys, uh, such a profound summary of collapse. But ultimately, I also do believe or, or have some hope in the human spirit, human ingenuity, um, not necessarily technology, but just you know the response of people. There are just certain things that I think we're going to talk about today that get in, way, get in the way of people collectively responding in a more sensible, sane, and urgent manner. Um, I'm curious, maybe just from your perspective, like how has collapse changed your way of thinking? Because it sounds like you've been collapse aware for a long time. Has it changed your life at all or the way that you view the world? Well, interestingly enough, um, when I wrote my book uh, called Last Chance to Save American Democracy, I, I, I had to start and decide where am I politically, right? Because I criticize the Democrats in this book. I obviously criticize Republicans in this book. I am kind of a person without a home. And because of collapse, it helped me really realize there is only two political systems in the entire world. One of them is the consolidation of wealth and power. And the other is democratization. And that's it. So because of that, that has helped me try to understand every single issue out there politically. So when I hear collapse and we talk, uh, you've talked about, for instance, uh, peak oil, you know, my friends on the left will say, oh, man, it's those corporations, it's Shell, it's, you know, uh, mobile, it's all of these companies and their greed. But if you look at, say, the Communist Party of China, they are just as involved in the cause of peak oil um, as American corporations as is the Saudi Arabian royal family. And, and that is because the Communist Chinese Party, corporate America, the Saudi Arabia royal family, um, the oligarchs of Russia, they all have so much more in common with each other than they do with the other 98% of the world. What they have is a system that allows them to consolidate wealth and power into the hands of a very few amount of people. Now, one does it through religion, one does it through communist ideology, one does it through corporate capitalism, one does it through the, his friends and the oligarch, but it's just the same exact difference. And so I think being collapse aware has helped me understand that. And I just don't reflexively say, oh, it's, you know, it's Shell. That's the reason why we have peak oil. And that's the reason why we have global climate change, because that is only a small part of the answer. And if that's all you see, 
you're missing so much more of uh, the problem. Yeah, Haven, we Corey and I each had the opportunity to read your book. We really enjoyed it. And it is a political book. I, I remember going into it thinking, oh, this is all about politics. But the more I read through it, I thought this is really about money and wealth. And you call out in the book, this age old struggle of wealthy versus poor and, and how concerning the widening wealth gap is. I'm curious to hear from your perspective. Why do you think the disappearance of the middle class is a threat? What, what issues do you foresee for society? Yeah, well, um, you know, I would actually, if I may, Helen and Corey, I want to turn that back on you guys. I want to ask a question before I answer that and ask you, if you had one thing to answer as to what is the cause of collapse, what is the overarching main reason for collapse? You know, and I know you've done 60 plus podcasts, so that would be a difficult question, but what to you is the main purpose or the main cause of collapse? And then I'm going to answer your question. Well, Kellen asked the original question, so I'm going to turn this on him and let him answer first, (laughs) though I have a feeling he's going to take my answer. (laughs) Well, maybe it's part of the reason I asked the question because we recently did an episode on historical precedent for collapse. Right. Great and, and as I did research on that and tried to see why these vast empires in the past have collapsed, it almost always seemed like one of the primary factors was a widening wealth gap. And so, yeah, yeah I, I do see it as a, a huge threat, but I feel like I'm not as enmeshed in the political system. I'm not as aware as you are of some of the implications of that. So I'll be excited to hear your perspective. Corey, anything you'd add there? Well, I'll just be a little more bold maybe in, in my stance. And I'd say it's greed. And it's, that goes along with what you just said, Kellen, I think. Um, but this idea that if people in power were less greedy, there would not be a need for unlimited growth, right? The, the systems that we have today are all based around advancing yourself personally. And that creates this need for growth. And that's what's gotten us to where we are, in my opinion. Yeah. And, I, and, and Kellen, your answer and Corey's answer is my answer to your question. Um, I just use slightly different nomenclature. Um, I say it's consolidation of wealth and power. Um, you might say it's the decline of the middle class, um, a wage gap or greed. And, and that's all you know, close cousins of each other. And ultimately, uh, you know, a, a fun thought exercise. Right now, Congress only needs to pass U.S. Congress, and of course, it would probably need to be duplicated by many other countries, but Congress only needs to pass one very simple law in for one sentence that would probably end collapse, or at least our acceleration uh, toward collapse, create a softer fall. Um, and that would be uh, you increase taxes, say, on corporations by 300%. But you could then have a reduction uh, by 300% if you make one change to your corporate charter. Um, so you're creating the uh, situation to um, uh, encourage companies to change their, their corporate charter. And that is if they um, have as one of the primary goals of their companies, uh, sustainability, and that they are measured by their ability to be sustainable and not impact the environment. And they would get 300% discount from their um, taxes, which would more or less leave it the same as today. Well, all of a sudden, every corporate board would change their charter because the 300% taxes is probably going to hurt them more than the changes they would have to do towards sustainability. And all of a sudden, now you would have every corporate um, uh, company in America um, working on sustainability issues in a real 
like bottom line uh, way. And that's all you need to do to fix all of this. Uh, I mean, as simple as it seems and kind of what a ridiculous like political solution is actually all we need because right now our charters of our corporations are to maximize shareholder profit. That is all that's really in the charter. That is their legal requirement. So when you say greed, Corey, it, that is correct, but it's also companies have to do this. You can actually be sued. You could have a shareholder lawsuit if a CEO were to add sustainability to their portfolio if it um, uh, depresses um, uh, any type of profits. In fact, when they do try to be more sustainable, the presentation they are required to give to their boards are to show how this actually won't hurt profits. And, you know, maybe it's because they'll, all right, you know, now greenies will buy us or maybe, hey, it's actually a cost savings if we use less paper for per milk carton. But the only way they're allowed to do anything that helps the environment um, or, or reverses global climate change is if they can show profit is to be made. And so now when you get to Kellen's answer, which is, um, you know, a, a wage gap um, a widening, yeah, that, that is true. But it's mostly because now those at the very top who have bought the literally hundreds of accountants and pollsters and lobbyists to help change the politics of and the laws of Congress to benefit them, they have just been succeeding because they have more money now than they've ever had. So it is cheaper to do, percentage-wise, it is cheaper for them to take over a Congress than it's ever been in the history of American politics. And that's why right now we're not seeing any trend the opposite way of addressing collapse, addressing peak oil, anything like that, because Congress, and that means Democrats and Republicans, um, are too much in the throes of these large corporations and you know individual billionaires who have these teams of people, entire buildings of people, all aiming to change the laws in their favor to increase their wealth and decrease the taxation and um, uh, liability for, you know, uh, any harm they may be doing. That's fascinating. So it's almost like systematized greed, sort of. It's not just individual greed, obviously, but it's this whole system that we've created that requires greed in order to continue to flourish. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and it's mostly because I think when um, any of our societies were, were being built, and you can look at the United States, since we have one of the most recent and youngest societies around, who were they built by, right? They weren't built by the people, you know, when the, even the American Re- Revolution, which really did help democratize the uh, previous system, which was controlled by the king and members of the parliament from England. And now it was going to be controlled by a much larger group of white landowners, right, in the very beginning of our democracy. So not a full democracy, but certainly more democratic than just parliament and the king. Um, Who created the rules? Well, the people who were there building the constitution were generally from the mercantile class. Um, They were business owners, major farm and land owners. And so they built the system that they knew that they could thrive in. They didn't do it because, you know, they they were like, well, we don't want global climate change to slow down our profits. They just did what they knew. And so it was built in essence for them. Uh, and um, they, you know, I think did their best to kind of try out some demo- democratic institutions and rules, but on the whole is built for them. And that's just never stopped. We've never had a moment when those who are making the rules don't come from 
the class of people and corporations that most benefit by having very lax regulations and low taxes on them. And so the idea of requiring them to care about sustainability in their charter, I'm guessing that's actually never been brought up in Congress, even though that's the only law we need to change. It's fascinating to think about uh, what would what would life be like? What would the world be like if 50 years ago, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, what you suggested, this sort of uh, incentive, uh, I guess incentive is what you could call it, but uh, basically in the end, a requirement to make sustainability a priority uh, to yeah. think about what, what, what we'd be like. Totally yeah. different. I mean, interesting, the president that probably came closest to that, there was um, two out of three cared about that. One was Richard Nixon. And then the other was Jimmy Carter. And that was the time where people, I think, were really becoming aware of the, the limits of growth, uh, you know, the 1972 book that you guys have covered. And, you know, Nixon, in partly in reaction to that, created the Environmental Protection Agency. Then, of course, Carter was all about sustainability. And then that just got, you know, absolutely just an avalanche of uh, kind of a much more muscular, robust political foreign policy came from Ronald Reagan in the early 80s. And that really changed the focus and emphasis of what the government should be doing right now. But we did have that moment in time where you had a Republican, Nixon, and a Democrat, Carter, who had a, a probably had a better adherence to sustainability than any president since then. So I hear you talk about the potential solution there that if if we just had this requirement for corporations to change their charter and to focus on sustainability, that would make a huge difference. It's hard to be optimistic that that will ever happen. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> and yeah. and part of it comes back to something you've mentioned in your book over and over again, and that's kind of this idea of what money can buy politically. Uh, yeah. You know, there's lobbying and there's all this control that corporations have in passing policy. So what do you think money should or should not be able to buy politically? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because that solution I just gave you, I didn't put that in the book. I, you know, I had thought of it a while ago and it just is so far from any possibility that I didn't mention that um, uh, as a solution for anything. Plus, it's a little far out from what I was trying to do with the book anyway. But I've had a lot of time since the book, uh, the book came out um, last year. Uh, to think about, you know, kind of a part two to my book, so to speak. And a lot of that has to do with the single biggest problem in our system, political system right now, and that is the ability to buy Congress, as you say, you know, what money can buy. And so my kind of current thought on that is, well, you know, if you're on the left, you could say, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to create this big majority in the Senate. We're going to create this big majority in the House. We're going to make sure Biden gets reelected. And then we're going to start tackling stuff. I don't see that as being viable. I don't see that as happening. Um, I'm not exactly sure what those on the right, what their answer to all of this would be. But what I have is a, um, an interesting idea to unite two sides. And that is ultimately what we have to do in order for us to move forward on issues of collapse, on uh, holding back autocracy to protect democracy, on global climate change. It's not going to be good enough for one side to just get a little bit more of a majority than the other side and then like just ram through a whole bunch of legislation. It's just not going to happen. So what my proposal is, is that there be a political um, coming together from both sides 
on two disparate issues. One is term limits. So that has historically been favored by people on the right um, and has been partially opposed by people on the left. Then the other issue is um, directly from my book. It's called the Citizens United Vouchers, which basically taxes every political contribution, including toward lobbyists. At, so every political campaign contribution towards PACs, towards 501c4s, toward uh, candidates, parties, over $100, taxed at 50%. And then you pool that money together and you give Americans a political voucher. So who knows, it might be average $40 per election, um, at least every American that voted in the last presidential election. And so now you have this disincentive for corporations and billionaires to contribute toward Congress. And you have more engagement from Americans because we're getting this check in the mail that we have to give to some political candidate of our choice. And, you know, and that is kind of coming from the left, although I've been very happy to see my friends on the right lately talking about how Congress has been bought. They think it's bought by Amazon and Google and Facebook, which they all think is from the left. And they are correct to some extent. Um, Those companies have helped buy Congress, but there's just as many, if not more than on the right who have bought Congress. So regardless, um, that is an issue I believe that both sides can agree on. We get term limits, which we desperately need. And the reason why we desperately need it is because you have these politicians who literally have one of the greatest jobs in the world. You could go from being a plumber, and I use that example only because that was a recent example from a few years ago, a plumber who gets into Congress, all of a sudden goes from struggling to meet their you know, mortgage or the rent you know, on a monthly basis to having incredible salary, their average perks when you include um, speaking engagements, um, book deals, um, and other investment opportunities is usually over a million dollars a year, including healthcare. And it's almost a job for life. But the most important thing that people never talk about is you get 40 staff people right away. So you get people doing your laundry, driving you everywhere, getting you seats at the you know Washington Wizards basketball game. You have this amazing life and you want to stay in it forever. And so if there is any solution that could threaten your place in Congress, regardless if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're going to oppose it. And so, and that is one of the greatest problems in all of politics right now. So that's why I am calling for both sides to come together and demand that Congress uh, allow the states, because you need a constitutional amendment, to decide on term limits and pass the Citizens United vouchers, uh, which would instantaneously help take money out of politics without taxpayers having to pay for it. So that's what I think money should buy is, you know, only the ability to have up to $100 of your money go to a politician without it, half of it being being taken away. Yeah, it certainly seems like that would solve a lot of issues. Now, you come from a perspective that's kind of unique when talking about these issues, because you were at one point a congressional candidate, correct? Yes. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that experience. Um, You talk about this in your book, and it's fascinating. But what was it about that experience? Um, that maybe has changed your view on on politics. Yeah. All right. So now we're getting some PTSD territory here. Um, <laughs> so I ran in 2018, uh, and um, I was doing very well in the debates, and you know, newspaper interviews, um, town hall meetings, and I was always a little behind the eight ball on the fundraising. I had hired a fundraiser who used to be 
the head of the Democratic um, House of Representatives fundraising. So the guy knew his stuff. Great guy. And after hearing me complain for weeks and weeks and weeks about what I was doing, which I'll explain in a minute, he finally had this, you know, come to Jesus talk with me. And what I was complaining about was that all he wanted me to do was make calls for eight hours a day. And he had hired this guy who literally sat next to me and would dial the numbers, hand me the phone, point to the person's name and tell me how much I should be asking for eight hours a day. I hated it. And um, so I, I constantly complained about it. And so he, he sits me down and he, and he says, look, you're complaining about fundraising, but we can't run this campaign without funds. You get that, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get that. All right, I'm going to stop complaining. I can do this for the next 10 months because that was, was 10 months before um, election day. And so then he said, wait a minute, you think you can, you're only going to do this for the next 10 months? He goes, do you not understand what the job of a congressperson is? And I thought he was just, you know, I thought he was being a little bit sarcastic. And I'm like, no, I don't, I guess. And he's like, every day, Monday through Thursday, you will sit in a big room with the other Democrats and you will be at a cubicle and you will have your call manager next to you and you will make phone calls. And then every once in a while, a light will go off in the room. You immediately hang up on your caller, no matter who they are. And you leave the room, you walk under the tunnel back to the um, uh, House of Representatives. You're given a indication of how you are to vote. You place the vote quietly and you come back to make your calls. And you will do that Monday through Thursday. If you want leadership, future leadership, then you will do that for 12 hours a day instead of eight hours a day. And then on the weekends, you will either go back home and do between two and three fundraisers, or you'll stay in D.C., go to the fundraisers that we have organized for you or the Democratic Party and the lobbyists have organized for you, or you'll support other Congress people in their fundraising. And that's what you do as a congressperson. I, I, I felt so naive, so naive, because I had been in politics for about 20 years at that point, And I had run campaigns at the local level. Um, and, you know, here I am thinking I'm like, you know, just so great at debating. I'm, you know, winning all these debates, all this stuff. And really, I was probably the most clueless person in the entire race, because I thought the fundraising stopped the day I elected and the message to me was, no, that's the day it starts. And I quit that night. I was, I was just done. And um, so that was a really a terrible experience because just on a personal note, you tell everyone, you know, that you're running for Congress and you project this confidence like, oh my God, the people I'm running against, they're just idiots. Um, I'm going to win this election. And then all of a sudden you pull out and you just can't help but feel really embarrassed and terrible for the people who actually gave you money, which you've already spent because you're doing all this fundraising and you have multiple staff people helping you. That's what running for Congress is like. And that's what being a congressperson, at least what I was told, is like as well. Seems like a really good summation of American politics at the moment. It's just money, 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 doing something that someone else tells you to do because that's what the party says. And it just maintains the status quo. Yeah. So I think let's dive into um, maybe the the meat of the book, which is your views. And, and you get very specific about this regarding the future of democracy in the United States. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your concerns are, what you're talking about there in the book? Yeah, sure. So... <clears throat> Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do another thought exercise. Imagine if you had a, you know, you, Corey and Kellen, you guys, 
it was Corey and Kellen Koch brothers. You had all the money in the world. Um, you were very political and you wanted to win at, you know, at any cost. And, and financially, you could afford that. What did, how would you actually win? And let's just say you feel like your message will not be totally embraced by a majority of Americans because your, your real motive here is to keep your taxes low, to stop the heavy hand of government from regulating your businesses, meaning you get to pollute as much as you want, to, which is another way of saying uh, you don't like regulation. And you really want to like just make it so that you win or your party wins. So when you do this thought exercise, the very first thing you're going to want is to create a system that allows you to contribute as much money as possible without any oversight. And in fact, you don't want people necessarily to even know that it's Corey and Kellen giving all the money because then they're not going to like you anymore, or at least half the country will not like you. So, you know, you don't want to be the most unpopular people in America. So now you figure out ways to funnel the money um, through various nonprofit PACs. And so that's the first thing you do. Well, that was done in 2010. It was done um, in a case called Citizens United. Most people don't realize Citizens United was actually a nonprofit that had lost the previous 19 lawsuits that it had filed. And then all of a sudden, they got this massive infusion of money, uh, mostly from Betsy DeVos, from the Koch brothers, from a few other people on the right. And they got some of the best lawyers in the country, and they finally won a case at the Supreme Court. And that case against the FEC uh, opened up um, the ability for billionaires and corporations and unions and other you know, major groups to contribute as much money as they want. And so what that means is we have some billionaires who on uh, the last three election cycles, on average, have contributed close to $300 million a piece. If you look at all of their contributions in the election cycle, do you realize how many phone calls you have to make as a congressperson to get $300 million? I mean, it's for the president. It's impossible. So what that means is now we re- the, the real campaign is vying for that level of money. Uh, what's the next thing you would do if you wanted to end democracy? Well, you want to make sure that the people you don't like, so um, if you're a Republican, that would be the Obama coalition. If you're a Democrat, that would be like Tea Party folks. Um, you want to make sure that it's really hard for them to vote. So you're going to um, create requirements that make it you know, uh, difficult for them to be able to register to vote. Maybe you recognize that 14% of Americans don't have a government ID. So now you require a government ID. You recognize that a lot of Americans don't have cars. So you close polling booths in many, many counties, particularly if they're from your other side. And you make sure you can only vote one day or maybe two days before the election. And so you have these huge lines of six, seven, eight hours. So that's kind of voter suppression. And you make sure that the Supreme Court, you know, is backing you um, on all of these efforts and saying, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's a political problem. You know, so you are allowed to do it. The next thing you would do is make sure you have a propaganda machine that keeps your side um, in the dark about what's what your side is actually doing and focuses on the problems of the other side. So while you're trying to suppress votes, have unlimited money, you may be um, uh, talking about some really irrelevant issues. Maybe you're talking about the border wall. Maybe you're talking about 33,000 missing emails. You're talking about four people killed in Benghazi. You know, you're talking about things to um, divert attention to what you're doing. And then probably the last thing you're doing, um, and maybe the most um, egregious, 
is you start changing who counts the votes. Um, it was this was best said by Joseph Stalin when he said, "I don't care who votes. I only care who counts the votes." And so these four little things that I've just talked about, or five little things, uh, if you include gerrymandering, these, which is a whole other issue, these five little things are a great way to attack democracy, yet still have really competitive, exciting campaigns. They just tilt the balance of, uh, or the, the likelihood of one side winning more than the other. And while both sides actually benefit from every single one of these things I've said, the ones who have really implemented it in the past 12 years have been on the Republican side. And that's mostly in reaction to the Democratic um, avalanche uh, from 2008 from Obama. If you remember, most people don't, Obama had 60 Democrat senators. He had almost two thirds in the House of Representatives. And he um, won by, I think it was 9 million votes the first election. It was a landslide. And two years later, it was the exact opposite, but that's because they were able to start with Citizens United and flood the 2010 campaign. And so that's really the main threat to democracy right now is one side has really figured out how to make it so that it's really difficult for them to lose. The gerrymandering, which I forgot to mention, give, currently gives Republicans in the House of Representatives a 29-seat advantage, meaning just from gerrymandering alone, they have an extra 29 seats because so many Democrats are consolidated into seats where it's 90% Democrats. And whereas Republicans have maybe 53, 55% Republicans. So you have Democrats concentrated in areas and it takes away Democratic votes from the other more competitive districts. So that's what I see as being the great threat to American democracy right now. I don't put it all on the Republicans' doorstep because every single one of those issues also supports the Democrats who are currently elected, right? Because if you think about it, if you got elected under Citizens United, that means you are a fantastic fundraiser. If you got elected because your seat was gerrymandered to be a safe Democratic seat, then you like gerrymandering. If you, know, you get elected, even though voters are being suppressed, it apparently didn't affect your campaign. So you have all of these incentives that actually help elected Democrats, not to gain the majority, but to stay in power. And that's the problem with the Democrats is they have all of the incentives to keep the current system, even though it is a threat to actually fair majority determined uh, governance uh, systems. Yeah, and I'll jump in and say, I was surprised as I went through your book, when you shared the statistics around how many elections are won by a minority. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as you talk about changes to election maps and changes to how elections are funded and all these things that are threatening democracy, what do you see as the eventual outcome? If we look several years down the road, what will it look like if we continue on our current trend? Yeah. And uh, great question. Um, because the current trend is that in 2022, um, Republicans uh, should get um, the House and possibly the Senate. In 2024, mostly because of the voter counter issues, like who's counting the votes, who's determining to, to send the electors over, who's determining which electors will, will be seated. I, I cannot see Democrats winning the, the presidential election in 2024, other than by popular vote, which they will win because they've won every single popular vote election 
for the White House since um, uh, Bill Clinton in 2000, excuse me, in 1992, other than one year, uh, one election under Bush. The trend, so the trend will be Republicans will control the House, the Senate, and the White House by 2024. And that sounds for the people on the left, that sounds like terrifying, right? I mean, everything you believe in sounds like it's going to get worse. And will they really um, uh, talk about collapse? Will they try to fix problems with global climate change or the financial institutions? You know, I think even hardcore Republicans would say, okay, probably not. That's probably not going to be higher on their agenda. But that's not where I stop with my analysis, because I believe in the cyclical nature of things. I believe that Republicans will completely control and consolidate power in 2024. Um, I think that Democrats will not govern again for a decade or two after that. But the problem with that system for Republicans, it's the same problem that every single autocrat in the world has ever faced. And to me is the leading reason that every civilization has collapsed. And that is when there is no democracy, when it is basically a small group controlling everything, you no longer have a meritocracy of ideas or of people or of anything. Rather, everyone who is promoted is usually promoted based on them being sycophants by being slavishly devoted to the great leader. And you see that in communist China. You see that in Russia. You will see more and more of that in the United States under a um, consolidated Republican um, uh, party. Uh, controlling everything, and that will lead to its own collapse because you need merit. You need the best ideas to to win. You need the best people to be able to voice those ideas and to not be thrown aside by the power elite. And the only system where good ideas and good people can really get to the top is under a democracy. It's not under an autocracy. And so the autocracy will flame out eventually, and we will have a renewing of democracy whether that is in 2030 or 2040, I, I can't predict. I'm sure there's some social scientists who could, um, but I believe we are probably looking at 12 to 24 years of a Republican autocracy that will increasingly get um, more powerful, um, consolidate wealth and power into their own hands, and um, increasingly lose support from the common people over the next four or five even 10 election cycles. So maybe to get more specific or just to ask a little more bluntly, in what ways do you feel that the collapse of democracy in this way or the creation of, of an autocracy, how does that escalate overall collapse? Yeah, and it, it's twofold. Um, one is we're going to continue with the system where um, consolidating wealth and power is the main driver. So in corporate America, um, just so now just looking at the United States, um, being able to have your quarterly profits um, and, and be able to report that to your shareholders will remain the number one priority for every corporation in America. And when you have that as the priority, instead of, you know, what is your company doing to uh, forestall collapse or, you know, claw back climate change? That itself is a problem. There are going to be no breaks. There's going to be an acceleration because now the voices on the left that, you know, half-heartedly try to get corporations to obey um, the laws of nature and science, they're going to be more muted 
And you're not going to have anybody really on the right with this consolidation of wealth and power um, in the Republican Party itself be able to stand up to them. Because there's a lot of Republicans who in the past have been conservationists, have been appalled at the, you know, the um, oversized power of corporations. But that's not going to be the Republican Party of the 2020s, uh, because when you cons- when you are controlled by a smaller group of people, it's really the autocrat at the top who sets the tone. And you're not going to have that type of Republican at the top. So that's the number one problem is that profits are going to be the main um, accelerant towards all of these problems. And I think the other main problem with having, um, say, a lack of democracy uh, is kind of what I talked about earlier. It's just it's difficult to have uh, meritorious decisions made. You don't decide things based on the science or what's good for people overall. You really are making decisions on what will help um, cement our leadership, our autocracy. So communist China is a great example. Let's let's take the politics out of it for a moment. If anybody on the left supports communist China, it's because they have absolutely no clue about politics. Certainly the people on the right have been very critical, as they should be, of communist China. But let's, So let's look at them as an, uh, perhaps a non-political, non-partisan example. In China, the president has one main driver, and that is to keep himself in power. And so you see this with the purges of anybody coming up through the ranks. You see this with the um, uh, amazing amount of corruption of wealth that moves towards members of the Communist Party. The wealthiest people in China, uh, wealth as big as uh, the Jeff Bezos of Amazon almost, are people who are affiliated with the Communist Party. The ones who aren't, like Jack, the Jack Ma's of the world, all of a sudden disappear after a while, right? Like you don't hear from Jack Ma, the second richest person in the world, because he never really bought into the communist hierarchy. And I don't even know if we know he's alive anymore. But the, the point is that um, President Li of China is going to make, it's actually President Xi of, of China, um, XI, not Li, um, Li is Taiwan. Um, the President Xi of, of China is going to be making decisions that keeps him, him in power. So if you have this amazing person rising through the ranks saying, oh my gosh, we need to absolutely stabilize the environment because of X, Y, and Z, the only decision he is going to make is, will that help me maintain my grip on society? If it does, then he'll do it. If it doesn't, then he won't. And so instead of having the decisions be the best decisions from a variety of options, it's what is the best decision for me um, to stay in power? That's the problem with autocracies. That's why democracy ending in the United States or anywhere in the world is going to accelerate collapse and breakdown. I um I liked that the book had a series of different ideas for solutions. Um, I know that you wrote this book uh, a couple of years ago, and in it you had stated some things that needed to change immediately if we were to save democracy, as it were. So I'm curious... Um, where we're at now in the couple of years since you've written the book, have we made any progress towards those things? Has it gotten worse? And what can people do to, uh, to try and, I guess, do their part? Yeah. So I wrote the book. It was actually just a year ago. It feels like a couple of years for sure. Um, but uh, I, it got published in October of 2020. Oh, wait a second. Yeah, yeah, 2020. So that was just a year ago. <laughs> just like I thought it was 2020. Um, 
so uh, not nothing has passed from what I, <laughs> I had written. Um, and although a number of the items have been discussed, uh, and so my, you know, um, when I talked earlier about the Citizens United vouchers, that was uh, idea number four. I mean, I had placed that as the fourth thing that needed to pass in order to fix our system. The people on the left, uh, so frustrating. All they talk about is a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. That will never happen. Any nonprofit that is raising monies to support a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United either doesn't understand American politics or is just trying to rip you off because you would have to have 10 separate Republican controlled states to support that. And they're not going to because they are in power because of Citizens United. Uh, but my very first issue, um, a number of my issues have been talked about. Uh, and number one was but always not quite the right solution. So my the single most important thing I identified was the filibuster. People on the left always say, let's get rid of the filibuster. And people on the right, of course, say, no, we must, you know, um, uh, fend the filibuster. Well, I said neither. I said, let's fix the filibuster. I said filibuster is fantastic. It really slows down the majority from being able to steamroll over the minority in the dark of night. And I said, let's just make it so that it peters out after a couple of weeks. Um, and so it gives time for the minority to mobilize America to stop whatever asinine thing the majority is trying to do. Um, and But no one talks about fixing the filibuster. The Democrats are either get rid of the filibuster or... Um, the Republicans are keep the filibuster. So in a sense, not much progress on fixing the filibuster. And for me, the other 11 uh, ideas I had are pretty much impossible or irrelevant unless you fix the filibuster. But there's a couple others like um, fixing the representation problems in the Senate, which have slightly been talked about by adding D.C. and Puerto Rico. I go farther. No one talks about the Wyoming rule, which would actually make the House of Representatives more um, equal in representation uh, by, you know, making every House seat is tied to the state with the lowest amount of citizens, in this case being Wyoming. And so then every for every 490,000 people, you get a seat. Um, actually, I think that's not the correct number anymore. But you more or less get a seat for every half million people. So states like Texas, New York, and California would have 20 to 30 more House of Representative members because we are so disproportionately affected by the current system. And, um, and then I talk about court reform, you know, 18 years, which by the way, is a Republican idea, limiting Supreme Court to 18 years. You don't need a constitutional amendment to change that. But I have some other reforms as well that you want to do in addition to the 18 years. So um, all without going over all 12, one by one, I will say that not much has changed because they haven't fixed the filibuster. So the last thing I'll mention is, is I want to get rid of gerrymandering. That was rule number five or solution number five, create a nonpartisan commission, do instant runoff. And then number six was basically having auto registration. Every American is registered to vote automatically and all of the government agencies they interact with keep it updated. So if you move, your registrations automatically move. And I also wanted votes to be hand counted instead of relying on the Dominion um, machines, which Republicans rightly point out can be hacked. They weren't, but they can be. Um, 
those last two, the gerrymandering and the voter registration stuff is actually in a bill that passed the House. But it never even had a debate at the Senate because it was filibustered from being debated. And that's how uh, obnoxious the filibuster is. It doesn't even allow Americans to hear a debate on issues because you have to get over the um, filibuster, meaning you need 60 senators to actually talk about a bill in the Senate, which is insane. I totally agree. And I, I would love, I hope that in the future we see those issues pushed because I can see how they'd make uh, a huge difference. So maybe to shift course here and, and maybe we can end the interview on this topic, but I understand that you have a, an initiative um, that you have begun an organization that you're leading called five journeys. Um, I'd love to hear a little more about what that is, why you're doing it and, and what you're hoping to achieve. Yeah, thanks. Um, I actually want to start five journeys um, and write our book, which is called the guy, which is halfway done. Um, and I sat down and accidentally wrote last chance to save American democracy. Um, very embarrassing to tell my wife after two months that I had actually not written a book about the book. I've been not written a page about the book I've been talking about for the last four years. And instead I'm writing a, um, yet another political book. Um, but five journeys is a nonprofit. And the idea is that if we really want change in society, I don't believe we can do it just through partisan politics. For those of you who are younger than me, I have tried to make change through partisan politics since I was 17 years old. So that is 35 years. And I, let me just tell you, everything is worse. And frankly, if you're on the right wing as well, I would imagine you would share that sentiment. Nothing has gotten better in the last 35 years of my political activism. I mean, almost nothing. Gay marriage is probably about the, the best thing that's happened. Um, and uh, other than that, I can't really think of anything positive. So that is a issue that helped me understand we need something more than just change through politics. And so I created a three-part formula for change. One is a personal transformation. So we have a curriculum that helps people become a more peaceful version of themselves, that helps them reach their highest potential, helps them have better, more harmonious relationships with people and their families at their work. Um, and so that's number one. We help um, personal transformation. Number two is we create a spiritual community. And I'll talk about that maybe in a moment where we are not like we accept people from every religion or atheists. It's not a substitute for any religion at all. Rather, it's this recognition that we have something we call the great connection where we are all connected to each other. And you see that when people love each other, you see that when we support each other, where we try to educate each other, where we try to have podcasts um, that rings the bell on collapse. This is when Corey and Kellen do this podcast, they are doing it as part of their um, connection to the great connection to each other. And so our idea is that for most of human history, our evolution caused us to procreate to so that we would have a survival of the race. But we have recently, in the last 10,000 years, moved past that. And now we are here really to love each other. And it's not just to have um, sex so we can have children. We have children because we love each other. And we take care of each other and we educate people and we protect each other. 
this is the great connection. It animates our lives. And so we are trying to build a community around that. And then the third part is just a pro-democracy global movement, uh, because that is our answer for almost all political problems is more democracy, less consolidation of wealth and power. And so the spiritual community we're creating, we've got this amazing thing in Topanga, which is just north of Los Angeles, where we have a nine-acre farm. And my wife and I opened it up to the community. So it's a co-op farm. People come and volunteer. And we practice regenerative um, organic farming techniques. And in exchange for your volunteer work, you can have part of the harvest. And so we are creating a community that where we are bringing dozens of people together and they are becoming more food resilient. So you talk, you know, your episodes on the problems with supply chain or with big agriculture um, and peak soil, I think is how you termed it, which is very clever. Um, that are issues we are actually addressing at our local community because we're building up the soil and we're allowing people to have this amazingly nutritionally dense food grown using some of the um, most current science and some of the most ancient agricultural practices and do it in community together. And so that's what I am dedicating the rest of my life to. It's not to help, you know, Bernie Sanders become president or a new Barack Obama or a Jeb Bush or whatever, but rather it is to be an example of how a community can come together and not have the profit motive be the overarching concern. Because obviously my wife and I can make a lot more money if we hire, you know, farm workers, pay them $6 and 50 cents an hour, which is all you have to pay farm workers and, you know, and just kind of cash in on their effort. No, we would rather bring in the community and be able to grow food for everybody, including ourselves. Uh, so that's kind of our project. Um, to learn more about it, it's uh, fivejourneys.org, the number five, and then journeys.org. And we've got people from all over the country who are interested in it. Very small, much, still much startup, but it's, um, it's animating uh, the rest of my life, I believe. Well, Haven, that sounds <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm fascinated, and it makes me want to learn more. I know that Corey and I have talked about this idea of building resilient communities. There's a lot of things that we want to do to move that direction uh, so I feel like I've got lots of questions on that. In addition to all the questions that I still have uh, about your perspective on on the political system and uh, the dangers we face. So it sounds like we may need to have future conversations with you. Uh, I, I love great. your perspective. Yeah, I, I, I would love to have those conversations. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I know that this, this is kind of a, an interesting opportunity. You've got a listener base here who is collapse aware is, is there any final message that you have for, for our listeners and what you might hope uh, for them to hear from your perspective? So uh, what I would like to do is delay that answer until the next time we, we talk, because I have a message that I want to direct more to the two of you. You guys have done you at Corey and Kellen done such a great job at making all of us collapse aware You've taken us through the issue systematically, and you've done it in such a way that I really don't feel like anybody on the left or anybody on the right should feel too alienated from your analysis. Uh, and But what I'm looking for is now you taking it to the next level, where you provide a unifying vision for both sides of our American political spectrum and perhaps other countries as well, um, to be able to come together. Because in, it's my belief that a Black Lives Matter 
marcher and a uh, all lives matter marcher or a back badge marcher have so much more in common with each other than they do with say a liberal bil- billionaire like maybe Jeff Bezos um, or a conservative billionaire like Rupert Murdoch um, because we all the 98% of us who aren't the top two in the nation we all suffer the same problems our public schools are floundering we have um, poor air quality we don't have access to healthy nutritional food I'm guessing that the BLM marcher and the All Lives Matter marcher are struggling to meet their rent month to month. I'm guessing that they have gun violence in their communities. Um, I'm guessing that their health care is frustrating to them um, uh, and causes them problems. And all of those issues, none of those um, uh, are problems or issues that Jeff Bezos or Rupert Murdoch are facing. Rupert Murdoch and Jeff Bezos have much more in common with each other than they do with the people um, uh, who are marching in the streets or who are just kind of in the other 98% because their unifying um, interests are keeping their tax rate low, getting rid of the estate tax, um, keeping regulation low, um, getting the government off their back so they can make as much money as possible. And that does not help an all lives matter marcher. That does not help a black lives matter marcher. And so I want to see the two of you Bring us all together, unify us, because it is us versus the people who are actually benefiting from collapse. And the people benefiting from collapse are those who are making money doing the very things that are accelerating collapse. They're benefiting from the money. They're not benefiting from the collapse, but they just don't really care about the collapse or they're able to wash their hands, like we said before, because of their charter that says, you know, you have to make money or you will be in trouble with the SEC. I mean, it's literally that simple for a Jeff Bezos. He cannot turn Amazon into Greenpeace. I, I mean, he would be thrown off the board and he might even be arrested for um, stock uh, um, shareholder fraud if he were to try to um, have Amazon be a agent uh, uh, to save the world. He's doing exactly what he has to do. Now we have to do what we have to do. And I'm looking for Corey and Kellen to uh, lead that. (laughs) No pressure, guys. (laughs) No, I love that. Um, I'll say I recently wrote uh, an essay on that very idea that you mentioned that it's not left versus right. The working class should not be fighting against each other, right? Uh, The fight should be up and down, not not left and right. So I I appreciate you bringing that up. And I also have to say that when you mentioned (sighs) five journeys, and what you're trying to accomplish there and that you're dedicating the rest of your life to that. I was filled with this envy <laughs> because uh, I can't think of anything more fulfilling than being able to dedicate your life, your time, your money, your energy towards trying to build a better future. Even if in this podcast, we talk about how the future is bleak and there is so much to be distressed about. Um, there's also things in our power that we can do to at least try to cushion ourselves and to make life as good for us uh, as possible. And like you said, that's done through community. That's done through resiliency. And I hope to fulfill your wish one day, uh, Kellen and I, to be able to to work putting our time towards bringing people together and unifying uh, and build resiliency. I have no doubt you guys will be doing that. And uh, I look forward to 
uh, being part of that with you. Thank you so much, Haven. Like Kellen mentioned, we want to have you back. So we'll try and find a time if you're willing to come back and, and schedule again with us. Uh, I think I think we have a lot more to learn, but we appreciate your time today and hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah, thanks guys. Thanks, Kellen. Thank you, Corey. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.